The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, before we consider this passage we've been reading, let's ask for the Lord's help. God, our Father, we think of that statement of awe made by your servant John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. That's what we want to do this morning. We want to behold the Lamb of God your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see no man save him only. So may it be true. Guide us by your Spirit that we might see Christ in the Word. For we ask it, our Father, in his powerful name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study of John's Gospel. And today we'll wrap up the first chapter. But before we get into the passage that's been read, that we've read together, let's take a moment just to orient ourselves. Now, the evangelist, John, has a goal for this gospel. And we have that goal in the last verse of the gospel, John 20, 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the goal. And so in the first chapter, we've had John declaring the identity of the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, his divine origin, his work in creation and recreation, his incarnation and 
his reception, or perhaps we could say his lack of reception. For we read that he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. The world did not know him. Now, if you think of the goal that you may believe, how are people to believe if they don't know? As we have in Romans 14.10, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So a a critical component of the Lord's ministry was to prepare his disciples to be sent. And one of the themes that we see throughout this gospel is the Lord preparing his disciples. You may know that John's gospel is divided really into two books. In the first 12 chapters, we see the Lord Jesus in his public ministry, um, performing signs and miracles so that people will know that he is the Son of God. But in chapters 13 to the end, we see Jesus uh, retreat from that public ministry and focus in on preparing his disciples. Now that process of preparing them begins with a personal call. Begins with a personal call. And in this chapter from verse 35, we see five ordinary men receive their personal call. Now, what I want to notice is that the whole thing that set this personal call of these five men in motion was a simple declaration by John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God. And, you know, we aren't told that John the Baptist was saying this to anyone. We know that two disciples were there, present, and they heard what he said. But we aren't told that he said anyone. I rather think that John the Baptist saw Jesus as he walked, and he was just overcome in his soul with a sense of who this man was and what he had come to do. That it just welled up in him. This was a statement of profound wonder love and awe that came from the heart of John the Baptist. And so deep was that, it came from such a depth in his heart, that when he turned around, his two disciples were gone. They had gone to follow the Lord Jesus. Now what is important to see here in that is that what I am personally enjoying has far more power to draw others than what I teach or what I preach. What I am personally taken up with in my own soul and personally enjoying and valuing has far more impact than what I say or what I teach. As the writer J.G. Bellett put it, our power in drawing others to him rests in our joy and communion with him ourselves. John had done with himself and was lost in the thoughts of the Lamb of God and the disciples seem to catch his mind, close quote. So we make much of transferring information to people. 
But what is the value in transferring information to people unless that information is received and unless that information is acted upon? I, am, I happen to be in the corporate training business, and I see every year millions and millions of dollars spent on communicating information to people. But you sometimes wonder how much of that information is actually received, how much of that information is actually acted upon. Those of us that are parents that send text messages know that often what we send is not received and acted upon. Well, the point is that the spark that ignites the interest in Christ is John's personal enjoyment of Christ. And this leads them to follow Jesus and inquire as to where he is staying. And Jesus simply says, come and see. So in all of this, there is a beautiful pattern. Those living in the presence of Christ create a hunger in others to inquire after Christ Those inquiring after Christ have their questions answered in the presence of Christ. And having been in the presence of Christ, they cannot help but to attract others. And that's the beautiful pattern that we see here. Last week, we considered Andrew and an unnamed disciple, quite possibly John, the writer of the gospel, and Peter. This week we'll observe this same pattern, but now it's in two other men, Philip and Nathaniel. But just before we get into their story, I want us to notice that what we have here is the personal call of these five men, the personal call of these five disciples, and the personal call comes before their official call. Now, if we only had the synoptic gospels, If we only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would only know, really, of the official call of the disciples. So, for example, if you take Matthew, and you know the story, well, Jesus is walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Andrew and his brother Peter, and they're fishing, and he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, and immediately they follow him. And then he proceeds down the shore a little bit further and sees James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. And they as well are fishing, and he, sa- and he says the same. And immediately they follow him. Now, that's nice, but you might think that's a little odd. If you only had the testimony of the Synoptic Gospels, you might think, how is it that uh, these men could just up and leave their business and follow a man of Galilee that they have never met before? But... That official call came after a personal call that we get here in John the Gospel. They had already met the Lord, recognized, and received him. But here's the thing that I want to notice. It seems that there is an interval of time, an unspecified interval of time before the, between their personal call and their official call. Now, you might say, what did they do during that interval of time between their personal and their official call? Well, you wouldn't need really to wonder about that because we have the answer. They went back to fishing. They went fishing. They just went back to work. Now, you might say, you might think, now that's a pretty undignified thing to do. When the Lord, the Lord of all the earth reveals himself and 
places that personal call on their life to go back to fishing, you might think that perhaps they would spend that time in the synagogue, you know, pouring over the scriptures or, or um, you know, join forces with John the Baptist and preach the gospel of the kingdom. But no, they went to work. And I suspect that that is exactly what the Lord wanted them to do. And the reason I say that, the reason I believe that that's exactly what the Lord wanted them to do is because it was while they were diligently engaged in this work that the Lord came to them and gave them their official call. Now, I think this is significant for us as well um, because you too, as a child of God, as one who has recognized that Jesus Christ is Lord and bowed your knee to him. You too have been given a personal call, just like Andrew. You too have been given a new name, just like Peter. And Jesus has said, follow me. But you're not sure what to do. You're not sure where to go. Well, do what they did. Go back to work. Go back to work and do that work as you have never done it before. Do it for the glory of God. Do it for the blessing of people. Do that work for his glory, and in doing that work, you will discover the next step. So with that introduction, let's consider together the personal call of Philip and Nathaniel. Those will be the two topics under which we consider this chapter. That's easy to remember. Philip And Nathaniel, and the scripture starts with Philip, so we will too. And you know, I I feel an affinity to Philip. I feel an affinity to him because I feel like every time we see him in scripture, he's doing something that's just a little bit wrong. You know, do you ever feel, do you ever have those days where you feel like you're just doing everything wrong? Do you have those days when you feel like if there's something wrong to be done, you'll find it? If you do, you'll appreciate Philip. And we run into Philip in three other places in Scripture besides this one, which, of course, you know because you have been looking at those three places in preparation for the sermon today. And I'm not going to go in and and look at those three places in detail. We will deal with them when we come to them um, through our expository approach to John's gospel. But I just simply want to touch on them for this specific purpose, and that is to understand something of the life and character of Philip. So, In John 6, we find that he has the wrong perspective. In John 12, we find that he has the wrong timing. In John 14, we we find that he has the wrong request. And here we find that he has the wrong words. So let's take a quick look at some of the insights we get on Philip. Philip, it seems, was a careful man. He was a thoughtful man. He had studied the books of Moses and the prophets, and he knew that Moses, what Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18 and 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And knowing these prophecies in the presence of the Lord Jesus, he recognized the fulfillment of these prophecies, and immediately he wants to share what he found with others. So he finds another seeker, Nathaniel. 
But Philip, though well-intentioned and excited about his discovery, still had an inadequate understanding of Jesus' identity. And his first attempt at evangelism doesn't go so well. And he says to Nathaniel, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, I figure that if I was to stand up here and to, to speak of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, some of you would have some words with me after, and I'm glad that you would. I can think particularly of some young men that would have some words with me, and you should, because it's wrong. Jesus was not the son of Joseph. Luke got it right when he said Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. So Philip made a mistake. And the writer of this gospel, who has already very clearly revealed to us the origin of Christ, doesn't correct Philip's blunder. And I believe it's to show us that he can still, that God can still lead people to Christ, or, or you can still lead people to Christ, even when you haven't got it all figured out. And that Jesus uses faulty people who make mistakes. But that's not the only problem Philip has. Nathaniel happens to be a student of Scripture as well, and he knows that there is no Old Testament prophecy that has the Messiah coming out of Nazareth. And so he receives Philip's testimony with skepticism, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later when we talk about Nathaniel. But just look at it from Philip's perspective. This is his first evangelism outing. And he not only makes a fundamental flaw in presenting Jesus, but he runs into a skeptic who has an objection that he can't respond to. He's got the wrong words. I think some of us could relate to that. Then in John 6, he's got the wrong perspective. This is the story, of course, of Jesus feeding of the, the 5,000. And we read, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said, to, and he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now again, I'm not going to get into this in detail, but just in a nutshell, poor Philip kind of missed the point here. Jesus wasn't giving him a math problem to solve. Jesus wasn't concerned about how he was going to feed 5,000 people plus, plus women and children. He had done that already many times more when he had fed for many years in the wilderness all of Israel with, with manna. Jesus wasn't looking for Philip's advice on how they could solve the problem. No, the Lord was testing Philip to see whether Philip would reason on the horizontal or on the vertical. And Philip went horizontal. And so the Lord has to demonstrate what vertical thinking looks like. So Jesus has the people sit down and then thanks God for a little boy's lunch and feeds the multitude. And we usually stop the story there. But do you ever think, how did Philip feel? Wish I had thought of that. So he's got the wrong perspective. And then in John 12, he's got the wrong timing. We read there, now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, 
who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, that was nice. So I suppose that maybe they came to Philip because Philip had a Greek name. Maybe, I suspect, he was more approachable than the other disciples, being a practical person, a person that seems to have had the ability to empathize with others' perspectives. So they come to Philip. Philip goes to Andrew. The two of them go to Jesus, and they want to make this introduction. But here's the thing. We never actually hear, we never read that that introduction actually happened. We never read that it happened. Instead, Jesus says to them, unless a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And I think that was another way of saying, Philip, Andrew, I've got nothing to offer the Greeks before I die and rise again. That will come, but it isn't now. The timing's wrong. But how does Philip feel? And then finally in John 14, it's that great passage where Jesus is about to go to the cross and he says to the the disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself that where I am, there you may be also. And where I am going, you know in the way you know. Now, Thomas is listening to all this, and he says, and I love it, he says, excuse me, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus gives those great verses. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him, and I've seen him. Now, Philip is listening to all this, and I imagine he's thinking to himself, is nobody hearing what Thomas is saying? Do you ever have that you're in a small group or, or something like that? Someone asks a question and people go on, you know, are talking and saying a lot of good things. But you're saying, is, is anyone going to answer the question? And I think that Philip's maybe feeling this way and he's maybe um, wanting to help Thomas out a little bit. And he says, Lord, just show us the Father. That'll be enough. Just show us the Father. That'll be sufficient. And Jesus says to him, Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? You don't believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? It was a bit of a rebuke, wasn't it? And maybe Philip's saying, I just asked what Moses asked. He wanted to see God, and God seemed happy with that. And he even even got that. I was just trying to help Thomas out a little bit. But it was the wrong question. It was the wrong solution to Thomas' struggle. It was the wrong request for it failed to recognize even after some three years together with the Lord what he had been saying. But you know what's beautiful about all of this to me? Here's the point. What's beautiful about all of this is that even though Philip may have felt that he had the wrong words, the wrong perspective, the wrong timing, the wrong request, who is it that Jesus personally sought out? Not Peter. Not James. Not John. Not Andrew. No, it was Philip. And what does he say to Philip? He says, follow me. Just follow me. We all come with natural traits that get us into trouble sometime. Some of us talk too much. Some of us don't talk enough. Some of us struggle with worry. Some of us struggle to trust. But Jesus simply says to us, follow me. And the, the idea is, Cleave to me. 
conform to my example. And as we do, he uses us. And so Philip should be a great source of encouragement to us that we don't have to have it all together to be used by God. So regardless of how Philip might have felt about himself, the Lord saw something in him and prepared him and used him. And maybe that's why whenever we hear Philip, we usually hear in the same phrase, in the same sentence, we hear Nathaniel. Because Nathaniel was a skeptic. We're going to talk about that in a second. But Philip is given responsibility for the skeptic because he had a unique ability to see another person's perspective. He had a unique ability to, empath- to empathize. And sometimes that got him into trouble. But I mean, I think it's, it's remarkable too that the Greeks came to him because I think he was approachable. And he had a trait of character that the Lord could see the value in, even though it got him in trouble sometime. So that's Philip. Now, speaking of skeptics, let's talk about our second person, and that is Nathaniel. So Philip, having received his personal call directly from Jesus, now goes out and finds Nathanael. Now, clearly Philip knew Nathanael and knew, knew that Nathanael was a seeker, that he was anxiously longing for the fulfillment of the promises recorded in Scripture. And I personally think, and I'll, I'll defend this in a moment, that Nathanael was in distress. I think he was in distress over Israel, over the condition of the nation. No, no godly Jew living in that time would not have been concerned about the state of the nation. And I say this too because of Nathaniel's reaction when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. That's all he said, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel has an extremely strong reaction to that. And that instantly convinces him that Jesus was the Son of God, the King of Israel. This was more than um, Nathaniel merely realizing that Jesus was the Messiah. He realized Jesus' relationship, unique relationship to the Father, which could only have been revealed to him by the Spirit. But what sparks it is Jesus saying, simply saying, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, what was Philip doing, or rather, what was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? And why was Jesus' knowledge of him being there such a significant thing to him? Well, we don't know, but I don't think it's a huge speculation for us to say that he was studying the scriptures. We know that Jewish scholars sometimes sat under a fig tree to study the scripture, and I think it's at least possible that in deep distress and in a deep desire to see God reveal himself and restore the nation of Israel, that he was meditating on his father, great-great-great-grandfather, Jacob, the father of the nation. And I think it's possible that he was, and just work with me on this, I think that it's possible that He was specifically meditating on a time in Jacob's life of distress, a time that mirrored Nathanael's own distress. Now, the time was when Jacob was running for his life from his brother Esau, and we sang about it in that song, Near My God to Thee, and Pastor Joe 
uh, spoke about it too in his prayer, and it was our call to worship today. He's running for his life, and as the sun begins to set in the western horizon, he finds himself in a trackless wilderness somewhere between Beersheba and Hannah. And he has, and as the inky darkness settles around him in that wilderness, he has a profound sense of loneliness and despair. There was no one to share that night with, no one to hold, nothing but a cold stone which he used for a pillow. And as he laid down on the cold, parched earth and spent his first night of many as a wanderer. I can't imagine anything but that Jacob felt a deep sense of loneliness and despair. Perhaps as Nathaniel thought on the darkness surrounding Jacob, he felt the darkness of his own situation, for Israel at this point had descended into moral darkness, so dark that most had given up hope in the God of Israel. Oh, there were the the religious leaders and their ritualistic observances, but they were little more than a show. And sure, there was the great temple, But there was no pillar of fire over the temple like there had been in Solomon's time and over the tabernacle throughout their trek in the wilderness. It was an empty shell, a painful reminder of what had been under Solomon so many years ago. But perhaps Nathaniel, to comfort himself, reflected on the promises of God in the law and the prophets. But the voice of the prophets had gone silent years before. Sure, it wasn't the first time that 400 years had passed without hearing from God. The nation of Israel had been under bondage to the Egyptians for 400 years before Moses had delivered them. But 400 years had come and gone since there had been any voice from the prophets. And there was no sign of the prophet that Moses had promised. And so, like Jacob 2,000 years before, he felt shut in by the darkness, alone and afraid, But something had happened to Jacob that night in the wilderness, and perhaps it gave Nathanael a flicker of hope as he meditated on it under the fig tree. As Jacob lay there in the darkness, suddenly a light. And there in the desert, set into that dry, parched ground, a ladder. Why had he not seen it before? He had looked to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, He looked all around. He had seen no one, but he had never looked up. And now he saw it, a ladder. You know, maybe I could just say something to the children for a moment. You may find a time in your life when you feel alone too. And you may even be lost and look around in every direction and not see your mom or your dad and be very scared. But you know what you could do at a time like that? You can look up. Because God sees. And there may be a time in your life when you feel tempted to do something that you ought not to do. And you've looked all around to make sure nobody's looking. But did you remember to look up? Jacob needed to look up. And in his dream, as he looks up, he sees a ladder. And as his eyes follow the rungs of that ladder, he sees that it goes right into heaven itself. And the ladder is in use for there are angels ascending and descending on that ladder. And above it stands the Lord. And the Lord says to him in his dream, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, 
And the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you all your offspring shall, uh, in, in, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, I don't know, but perhaps all of this was occupying Nathaniel's mind. And as he meditated, as he meditated under the fig tree, and maybe in desperation, he cried out and said, Lord, Lord, show me that ladder. Give to me that hope that you gave to my father Jacob in his despair. Bring us through this dark night. Show us your light. Show us your salvation. Show us that you have not cast your people off forever. Reveal yourself to me as you revealed yourself to Jacob. I don't know. But that story is true. And we know that there was something going on. And I think that something, based on what the Lord said, has something to do with this story about Jacob. But if that's true, how, how that does help to explain how he responded when he is introduced by Philip to a man of Nazareth. And Jesus says to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Can you imagine the shock of Nathanael when he heard this? No one had ever seen him under that fig tree. He knew that. And certainly no one had ever could possibly have known his thoughts and emotions. No one but God could have seen him and heard him. But when Jesus saw him, he identified him. He identified exactly where he had been, and he articulated the deepest longings of his heart. What could he say? Philip had said, come and see, and he came and saw, and now he declared, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And just as Jacob had discovered a ladder in his wilderness, a portal into heaven itself, Nathaniel discovered a ladder as well. A ladder in the wilderness a ladder that could bring him right into the presence of the Father. For Jesus had said, as we said earlier, as we mentioned earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Emmanuel, God with us, had come. The word had become flesh and dwelt among them. And Nathanael saw him, not as Jacob did from a distance, but face to face, and it changed him forever. And all of this is so wonderful when you consider that Nathaniel was a skeptic. He was a skeptic. What changes a skeptic? What changed Nathaniel? Remember the pattern we talked about? One who has been in the presence of the Lord, Philip, draws the skeptic into the presence of the Lord with a simple invitation, come and see. He can't answer Nathaniel's question, so he just says, come and see. And when Nathanael came, he met one who knew who he was, where he had been, and the deep longings of his heart. And his skepticism melts away. Were all Nathanael's questions answered? No. 
But the most important one was, and now he had a source of light through which he could discover more. For in your light we see light. I want to ask, are you a skeptic this morning? God doesn't despise a skeptic. God doesn't call upon you to check your brain and believe in an unreasonable, irrational hope. There is much that is beyond our reason, but there is nothing that is unreasonable. God said in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But I want you to get this, and this is our final point. There are two kinds of skeptics. There are honest skeptics, and there are dishonest skeptics. Nathaniel was an honest skeptic. Jesus called him that. He said, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And such a man could be reached by the truth. Let me show you just for a second the difference between an honest skepticism and a dishonest skepticism. Nathaniel was skeptical because he knew that there was no Old Testament prophecy that had the Messiah coming out of Nazareth. But he was open to the idea that he may have missed something, and he was willing to come and see, and when he comes and sees, um, he's convinced. Now, that's a fair skepticism. The Pharisees, on the other hand, if you remember the story in John 7, when Nicodemus suggests that they shouldn't pass judgment on Jesus without hearing him, they scoff and they say to him, this is in 752, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, that just wasn't true. Jonah, Micah, Elijah all came from Galilee and possibly Nahum and Hosea as well. So why didn't So why did they say, why did these Pharisees say that no prophet came out of Galilee? And the reason is because they started with a conclusion and then they came up with a narrative to fit the conclusion that they wanted to come to. That's intellectual dishonesty. And there's another type of dishonest skeptic as well, and we read about them in John 7 and 42. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? These ones didn't even have the energy to evaluate where Jesus came from. A basic inquiry would have revealed that Jesus was from the seed of David, that he did come from Bethlehem, but they didn't have enough energy even to seek that out. It's dishonest. It's not intellectual honesty. So if you're going to be a skeptic, at least be an honest skeptic. Does your skepticism come from a searching heart that longs for light or a hiding heart that desires to stay in darkness? Do you ask questions to enlighten or to obfuscate, to muddy the waters, so to speak, so that you can avoid responsibility to the God who created you and the God who calls you to repentance? If you are, then I pray that God in his mercy will convict you of sin righteousness, and judgment to come. I pray that you'll have no rest and that he will bring you under deep conviction and that he will bring whatever circumstances are necessary in your life to bring you to your knees. That he will bring you to repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you are a skeptic that is seeking light, 
then come to God with your doubts. God's not afraid of your questions. There is no, uh, there is no question that he can't answer. And if you come with an honest heart, he will not turn you away, for he promises you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Well, in conclusion, these disciples went on to take the gospel throughout the known world. And most of them, perhaps all, most of them, were called to lay down their lives for Christ. But they turned the whole world upside down, and today they are in the conscious presence of the Lord, enjoying his company and awaiting with us their resurrection bodies. But let us never forget the spark that ignited their passion. It was a simple comment by John the Baptist, not not even intended for their ears, perhaps, but flowing from a heart lost in wonder, love, and praise. Behold, the Lamb of God. And there is nothing, brothers and sisters, that prepares us for the task ahead of us. Nothing that prepares us for that, like beholding the Lamb of God. And that is why we come to the Lord's table, to be with him, to meditate on who he is and what he has done, so that our hearts may be transformed as we behold, as we behold the Lamb of God. So let's come to the Lord's table. Let's come as brothers and sisters, remembering it's his table. And he in- This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.